Great, great to see all of you. Uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful time of worship, and, and we're just kicking off the fall here. And, and so I'm going to spend a little bit of time at the very beginning of the sermon just talking about what we're doing, what we do during this movement of our sermon, uh, of, our, of our service, which we call uh, listening. And so we believe that understanding the Bible and our purpose in life, it, it doesn't have to be a mystery in our lives. So we turn to the Bible every week. And we do that in order to hear from God together and to better understand his word and to really fall in deeper and deeper love with him, to get his wisdom and his strength for how to live. And everything that we do in this movement of our service, the second movement of our service, is about equipping you for for a life with God, uh, a life lived for God, for growing deeper in love with God and really falling in love with the things that God loves. And so our goal isn't simply to offer a biblical message that inspires you and equips equips you for this coming week. I want that. Love for you to be inspired and and like that you would have a great week, but not at the cost of teaching the Bible uh, so that you can grow in your knowledge of God and his word and even teaching you to better read the Bible. So that when you read it, you study it with others, you get more out of it. So one of my, one of my pastoral heroes, he's preaching heroes, he often tells pastors when he has the opportunity, he says, preach, don't teach a Sunday school Bible hour. And I completely disagree with him. I really, I respectfully, I mean, he's one of my heroes, but I respectfully disagree with him for a very, very simple reason. We don't have a Sunday school Bible hour for adults. <laughs> We don't have one, and most churches don't. Hardly anybody has one anymore. And even in churches that still do, only a handful of the congregation go to the Sunday School Bible Teaching Bible Hour. We all need to know what's in this book, and we need to know how to read it well. It's God's special revelation. It's the theological term, God's special revelation to us. And that's an amazing thing. It's God's word to us. And some have described it as God's love letter us. And it is that. And it's even more. So we spend time studying it together right here when we gather together. We study together. And that time extends into our small groups. And that's why we have a study that's attached to your outline that you got while you were coming in. And today we're, we're launching a series on Genesis 1 that it's going to take us up to Advent. And then we're going to come back to it. In January, early in January, we're just going to pick up where we left off this fall. It is an immersive series on the first page of the Bible. It's immersive. (laughs) And we're going to plunge into a deep, deep sea of knowledge about God, about our world, about ourselves, about our purpose, what we've been created for. If you're new with us, uh, we've never quite done it this way before. We've never taken really such an immersive dive into such a short passage, such a short section of Scripture. So you may wonder why. Why would we do that with Genesis 1? And the reason is because the first page of the Bible introduces almost every major theme of the Bible. And it does so in such incredible and breathtaking detail that it deserves an immersive and expansive study. And so we're going to be examining a masterpiece of life-altering proportions 
We're also going to use Genesis 1 as, a, as kind of a portal into uh, some of the big themes of the Bible, themes that are not only big themes of the Bible, but they also are big themes of our life, our daily work and school life, if you're still in school for that matter, our family life, our a myriad of issues around sexuality, and, and even our rest and our recreation life. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you and turn to the first page, Genesis chapter 1. If you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the New International Version, version the NIV. If you don't know the Bible well, this is going to be a great place to start. Great, great place to start. We also have a class that we call the story of God. Maybe Jonathan mentioned it, but it's, a, it's also an opportunity to get a picture of the whole and how to read the whole Bible. So we're going to pray, and the prayer that I'm praying, the prayer of illumination, is a prayer based on Genesis 1, verse 1. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the beginning you created the heavens and the earth. You created us, and you created a home to live with us. We have done our best to make it uninhabitable for you. Yet because of your love, you sent your son to dwell with us here and you give us your spirits so we can dwell with you now. Through your word and the spirit, renew our vision for the way it is supposed to be and for the way that it will be once again. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Genesis 1 is a literary masterpiece. You've heard me say this before. I've given you a little clues before about it. Now, your first thought might be, oh, no, <laughs> I don't really, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get masterpieces. Don't worry. Um, it's not even, there's nothing wrong with you maybe going, oh, no. <laughs> Uh, the reality is that you're just expressing an honest feeling, and frankly, everybody has certain parts of the Bible that they find a little boring, that's not the most exciting thing, and you may be thinking, if it's a masterpiece, I am going to be, I'm going to be bored. I would guess that the vast majority of us would say that, our, would not say that our favorite authors are like the literary giants, or that our favorite books are the literary great books. That would be the majority of us, not, not everyone in this room. Uh, if you read, not everybody reads, I mean, not books, uh, most of you probably would prefer just reading an engaging mystery thriller or a science fiction or fantasy novel or maybe a self-help book or a popular science book. There's some great books on science these days, history books that are written like novels. Maybe that's the kind of thing that you would want to read if you were to read, not a literary masterpiece. I don't think, though, as you... When you come out of today, even before that, I don't think you're going to feel that, oh my goodness, this is one of those masterpieces that I really can't get into. This is not going to be boring at all. For the others of you, you might say, so what if it's a literary masterpiece? And I hear you and I, and I see it as a challenge to show you how it matters and why it matters. And some of you might be intimidated when I say it's a literary masterpiece. Years ago when we were first married, Lois and I, we were living in Massachusetts, uh, and we used to go to the YMCA, we used to do an exercise class there, 
And there was a couple that we got to know. We talked to them a lot. We eventually invited them over for supper. And they came, and we had found out over time that they owned an antique store in one of the little small towns in the North Shore of Massachusetts. And as part of the evening, as we were talking, they told us a story about a lady who came into their store and was looking at a painting. And she looked at it for a long time, and then she turned to them and she said, how much for the painting? And they said, five. And they said she stood there another 20 minutes, staring at the painting, trying to decide whether to buy it or not. And eventually she took out $5 and handed it to them. They said, $500. It was $500. And she's like, oh, 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 no, no, no. And she leaves. Then they said to us, they said, can you imagine spending 20 minutes trying to decide to spend $5 on a $500 painting? Well, we just kind of smiled at them, and after they left, we looked at each other and said, yes, we can imagine that. Because number one, we didn't have any money, and number two, uh, we couldn't tell the difference, you know? It just, <laughs> don't know much about masterpieces. So that might be you, <laughs> all right? And if that's you, when it comes to literary masterpieces, I think you're going to get it. I think you're going to get that this is a masterpiece in less than eight minutes from now. All right? It's a challenge, all right? You're going to get that it's a masterpiece in less than 10 minutes from now. I think you're going to be intrigued by it. And I think you're going to want to know more. All right? So, uh, as we do oftentimes, we're going to, we're going to look at uh, a Bible Project video on Genesis chapter 1. And this video is what they call a visual commentary. I think it's something they're starting to do now. So this is one of their newer videos, a little different than the ones with the cartoon characters and that sort of thing. Uh, but get ready, you might want to take some notes if you have your notes. But let's watch the Bible Project video. The first book in the Bible is called Genesis. And we're going to look closely at the first page of the book of Genesis. It's a carefully crafted narrative about God creating and ordering the whole cosmos. Okay, let's check it out. Now, the opening line of the whole Bible is, In the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Now, your Bible translation might say, the heavens and the earth. In biblical Hebrew, the word for heaven refers simply to the sky above. And the word for earth does not mean globe, but rather the land. The ground below us. Right. This line is summarizing what's going to happen in the following narrative, which starts in the next line. And it reads, now the land was wild and waste. This phrase rhymes in Hebrew. The land was tohu vavohu, which means unordered and uninhabited. This is the ancient way of talking about the pre-creation state what we might call nothingness. For the biblical authors, non-existence means having no purpose and no order. And the next line uses another image to say the same thing. And darkness was on the face of the deep abyss. What's the deep abyss? Yeah, it's a dark, chaotic ocean. It's another common way the ancients described the non-reality that preceded creation. Now, Here's where things start to get interesting, because in the midst of those dark waters, God is present. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word for God's Spirit is Ruach, 
which can refer to wind or breath or God's invisible presence. So you can't see it, but God is present in the darkness, ready to bring order so that life can flourish. Yes. And this ordering happens in a series of six days. Each day begins with the phrase, and God said, and then ends with the phrase, and there was evening and morning. Yeah. Every day addresses those problems introduced in verse 2, that there's no order and no inhabitants. So on days 1 through 3, God splits apart that unordered darkness into three ordered realms. Then on days 4 through 6, God fills the uninhabited wasteland with creatures. Interesting. Let's see how that works. Okay. So the first realm of order begins with light on day 1. Ah, yes. Let there be light. This is God's own glorious light that fills and contains the darkness as he separates day from night. God's establishing the order of time. Okay, and then on day two, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. What's the vault? In the ancient culture of the biblical authors, the sky was perceived as a solid dome that holds back waters. God's depicted here as splitting the chaos waters in half, above and below, which creates the realms of the sky and the seas. And then on day three, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. God is establishing the realm of the land and it emerges out of the chaotic waters. And then there's a bonus creative act on day three. God invites plants and fruit trees with seed to emerge out of the land. Okay, so we've got the realms of time, the realm of the sky and the seas, and the land. And they all have order. Right. Now, it's time to go back and fill these realms of days one through three with inhabitants. This is what happens on days four through six. So in day four, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky. God installs these lights, the sun, moon, and stars, as signs and symbols that reflect God's own light. He gives them his own royal power to separate day and night. Then on day five, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the land. Yeah, these are the creatures that live in the waters below and those that fly near the waters above. Then finally on day six, let the land produce living creatures. They emerge up out of the ground to live on the land. And then matching that bonus act of creation on day three, God makes a special land creature, human, or in Hebrew, Adam. Then God provides all of those plants from day three as abundant food. Now over and over, God says what he created was good. But then after making humans, God says that it is very good. Yes, humanity is the climax of days one through six, and their importance is explained in the first poem in the Bible. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So humans come up from the ground like the other land creatures, but they're also more. They're God's image, which means that together, men and women embody and represent the creator within his creation. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, ruling over the creatures. This is the purpose of being God's image, to oversee creation as God's partners and representatives in the world. Very cool. Now, after the six days, we get a concluding line that links back to the key words of the opening line. And so we're completed, the skies and the land and all their inhabitants. Except there's one more day. It stands outside the pattern of days one through six, 
It's the big climax. And God completed on the seventh day the work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and set it apart as holy. So God rests on the seventh day. This is a standard biblical image where God, after ordering the cosmos, comes to rest and dwell in his sacred space. It's like the whole world is a holy temple where God lives with his people. Now that phrase, there was evening and morning, it doesn't appear on day seven. That's right. The seventh day has no end. That's because Genesis 1 is describing God's ideal vision for the whole cosmos. A place where God lives with his partners to rule the world in harmony forever. Yes, the seventh day is the goal of creation. It's actually so important that the author of Genesis 1 has woven the number seven into every part of the story. There are seven days of creation, seven announcements that creation is good. There are seven Hebrew words in the opening verse, and then two times seven Hebrew words in verse two. And then the statement about the seventh day has three lines of seven words. Wow. So the first page in the Bible is doing way more than just telling us how the world was made. Right. Genesis 1 has been designed to show us that God's purpose is to share creation with his images so they can rest and rule it with him forever. And that purpose is what the rest of the biblical drama is all about. Pretty cool, huh? All right, let's look. Let's look at one of those features. You start getting a sense of how finely crafted this first page is in watching that video. And we're going to take one of those literary features in this chapter. We're going to take the use of sevens and look at why the sevens are so important. That moves really fast. <laughs> so we're going to slow it down a little bit and we're going to ask why is seven so important? There's a this high level of artistry that went into weaving sevens into the story. And sevens make a huge theological point. So what are the sevens? Um, they gave some, but they, they didn't give one. So you have the seven days of creation. That's the one everybody notices, uh, right? But then you have seven announcements that the creation is good. And a little interesting thing happens, and it could be coincidence until you see some of the other things I'm going to show you. If I can have the next screen. Second day doesn't say it's good, uh, but we have it twice on the third day. And so by the time you're done saying it, you know, the, the very good and the good, you wind up with seven occasions, okay? Maybe, maybe that's a coincidence. But then you come to the next feature of sevens, which they pointed out in there, which were all the lines, uh, the sentences that are in seven Hebrew words. And it's just not one or two. It's, if I could have the next screen, please. Um, you have seven word sentences. You have in the first verse, seven words. Then in the second verse, you have seven words and seven words. And then, as this is coming to a conclusion in chapter 2, which, by the way, we're going to say a lot of times the first chapter of the Bible, it really runs till chapter 2, verse 3, okay? The chapter markings are not inspired by God and, and fall in a really bad place here. Uh, but you have, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, you have three seven-word 
sentences. So if we can look here on the next screen, you have seven word sentence here. And then next screen, we have two, sen these are two sentences here of seven words. And then we come to the end and we have three sentences that again in the Hebrew, in the original language, are seven words. And then as you keep reading and reading and rereading and rereading and people who have done this and, and studied this over and over again start noticing some more sevens. So you have key words in this chapter. They were repeated many, many times in this chapter. And they occur in multiples of seven. Next screen. So you have the word God, which is the most important word. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at that word and its significance. Then you have earth 21 times. You have heaven 21 times, multiples of sevens. It's so pervasive in the text that it can't be a coincidence. And it's so masterfully weaved in that you don't notice it. You could study this in Hebrew for years before you would notice it. It would be like you would have to be looking for, for patterns. And you would be if you were studying it in Hebrew because this happens a lot in the Bible. So it's, it's seamless. It's just weaved in in a seamless way. Now, that's part of what makes this such a masterpiece. And, and it's not for show. It's for a purpose. There's a purpose in just this one feature of sevens. So the question is, why the sevens? Why, why, I, I, want, I want to give you three reasons why sevens are so important in this chapter. And these are all interrelated reasons. The first reason is that seven symbolizes Completion, fullness, wholeness, perfection. You can understand that all those words are very closely related. It symbolizes all those things. And there's a very, very simple reason for that. And um, I mean, you, you can pick this up as you read through the Bible and you look at all the sevens and multiples of sevens in the Bible and you see what they're talking about every time and you get, oh my goodness, this is really trying to communicate something. But the earliest forms of Hebrew writing, oh, let me just show it to you. But I have the next screen. Okay, so the word seven is Shabbat, all right? Or Shabbat is another way of pronouncing it. The word fullness, completion, is the word Shabbat. Shabbat. In the earliest forms of Hebrew writing, there it is. Do you see a difference? There is no difference. It's the same word. It's the same word. So how do they know you're talking about fullness or you're talking about seven? context and hearing. Okay, so it would have been spoken before it was written, and you would say Shabbat, and you would say Shabbat for fullness. But how would you, when it got written, they just didn't develop vowels. The whole Hebrew alphabet in the early days were all consonants, kind of like life in Romania and some places like that in Ukraine, you know, just like big consonant words, you know. And you've got Continents, that's it. But when they spoke, they had vowels. Just took a while to it be, to, to it be developed in all Semitic languages of, of, that whole, of that whole area. So seven, the number seven, so closely related, came to symbolize completion, fullness, wholeness, perfection. The numerous sevens, next screen please, the numerous sevens, um, the numerous ways seven is featured naturally points 
to the actual use of seven in the story, right? The seventh day. The seventh day is the goal. You see how the structure changes when it gets to the seventh day, and it doesn't end. The seventh day doesn't end. It's all moving. The six days are each moving closer and closer, trying to get to the seventh day, and then they get to the seventh day. That is the goal of the creation. Tim Mackey puts it this way in the video. He says, Genesis 1 has been designed to show us that God's purpose is to share creation with his images so they can rest and rule it with him forever. Now, you may have heard it when he said it in the video. He probably missed it, but he, he really made the point that that word for rest that we find in chapter 2 on the seventh day is a word that consistently throughout Scripture is talking about God dwelling with us, God settling in with us. And then the seventh day, and some other literary features that we'll look at next week, point to God making a home where he will live with us. That's what they point to. So it's not just that he will rest and rule with us, but that he will live with us. Now this is going to become clearer and clearer as we spend time in this chapter, as we look at some of the myriad of, of hyperlinks in this chapter to all the different places in the Bible, it's going to become clearer and clearer. But again, this is how Tim Mackey puts it in the video. He says, God rests on the seventh day. This is the standard biblical image where God, after ordering the cosmos, comes to rest and dwell in a sacred place. It's like the whole world is a holy temple where God lives with his people. All right, so God creates a home where he is going to dwell with humanity, where he's going to dwell with us. As we're going to see in the next few weeks, he brings order to chaos and desolation, you know, those, those two words, wild and waste, um, that were talked about in the video. He brings from chaos, he brings order in order to make a habitation, a habitable, pla habitable place for humanity that he's going to create. The earth is going to become our home, but it's not just our home that God is creating. God is creating a home where he is going to be there with us. He's going to dwell in that home with us. And that's the way that it was supposed to be. That's what Genesis, the first page, tells us. This is, this is how it was supposed to be. Any place where God is going to be settling in and living, resting, will be complete and perfect and whole. He's not going to just throw things together. It's going to be complete and perfect and whole. I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this for yourself, okay? What turned the house you live in or the apartment you live in, what turned it from a house or apartment into a home? When you moved in, what turned it into a home? Maybe, maybe you're still living at home with your parents, and uh, the question is, if, you know, if your parents say, at one point when you moved into your house or in your apartment, you said, this is your room, or this is the room you're going to share with your brother, or this is the room you're going to share with your sister, right? And you began to call it your room. When did it go from just being a room to being your room? Think about that. What, what happened? What did you do? What needed to happen for that to happen? For God, making a home started with bringing order from chaos. Bringing order from chaos. 
So look at verse 2 of the first page. Now the earth was formless and void, wild and waste. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now there's some debate about what I'm about to tell you, but many believe that 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 description in verse 2 is a description of the pre-created state. They talk about it in the video. We'll talk about that debate. You don't have to agree with that. But that's what he's describing, the pre-created state. And God begins to bring order to it, and he makes it habitable beginning in verse 3 when he says, let there be light. But whether or not this is a description of the pre-created or even an uncreated state of the heavens and the earth, there's no doubt that what's being described here is uninhabitable. What is described in verse 2 is uninhabitable until at some point in the process of the six days. And this theme of God making a home on earth, we can have that, that next slide, please, I think. Oh, maybe not. So this theme, this theme of God making a home on earth to dwell with us is central to the story of God. As we turn to the end of the story, uh, the next to the last page of the Bible, in a sense, we can call it that, he reorders his disordered world. All right, so you've got the ordering of the world, and then you have the reordering of the world. Do we have these passages? I can't remember. Yeah, okay, so here we go. Next to the last page in the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's in quotation marks because it's a quotation from the Old Testament. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We're going to talk in this series a lot about the picture that is being drawn for us of, of God and living in his temple, you'd say, in, in the skies and coming down to earth and then pulling back and the day when it's, he's going to come uh, again. Here's the, the last page of the Bible. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and, the peop and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's the story of the Bible in a nutshell. God creates a home where he dwells with us. And God will recreate a home where he will dwell with us forever. Now, between the first page and the last couple of pages, there's a lot that happens. It's, it's between the creation, between the new creation, and most of the stuff that happens, it's tragic. We're living in a tragic world. You know, if you had a good day today, that's great. <laughs> but you've got, if, if today was a great day, you've got nowhere to go now but down. <laughs> and you will. That's reality, all right? So this becomes the bookends of the whole Bible. These are the bookends. Creation, new creation, recreation. Now I shared a lot of detail a lot of information, but I don't, I don't want you to miss the main point. 
This story from the first page to the last tells us that God has a deep desire to live and dwell with us. God, the God of the universe, wants, he desires to live with us. He wants to relate to us. He wants, he wants us to be in a relationship with him. But what he wants is something more than what we have now. We like to use the term, at least in our tradition, I think if you come from the tradition that this church is in, we oftentimes talk about having Jesus in our hearts, right? Have Jesus in our hearts or Jesus in our lives. And experiencing Jesus, God, in our hearts is really, really important. And it starts, the Bible tells us, by placing our faith in Christ and what he did on the cross and what he did through the resurrection to make things right between us and God. So he comes into our life. Experiencing God in our hearts now is an incredible thing that we take for granted a lot of times, but it's an incredible thing. But God's ultimate goal is infinitely better than coming into your life or into your heart. His ultimate goal is to renew heaven and earth so that once again, he will live and dwell with us personally, with us, literally with us, not in spirit, literally with us. He will recreate a home. He will recreate a temple on earth, an earth temple of sorts. We'll come back to that theme many times in this chapter. He's doing that so that he can live with us because he wants to live with us. He wants to live with us forever. That's what he wants. Now, our God is a long-sighted God. And uh, let me explain what I mean by telling you a story. It's a story that Brian Heasley tells in a little book called Be Still. And Brian Heasley is one of the executive directors for the prayer, 24-7 prayer movement out of Britain. And he tells a story about falling for his wife uh, towards the beginning of the book. And he says he had just gotten out of prison. He had become a Christian. Maybe he was a Christian before. I don't know his whole story. But he had just gotten out of prison. He started going to church, and he loved going to church, and he loved the church that he was in. He was in it for many, many years. And he said he noticed his wife. She played saxophone on the worship team. And he noticed his wife very early on. And so he said, it's not that I wasn't worshiping, but I did maneuver myself so that I could watch her <laughs> while I was worshiping. And it wasn't, it wasn't long before we made eye contact. And she smiled. And I smiled. And this went on for several weeks. He just, they'd just look at each other, like longingly, during the worship service while she was up there on the worship band playing saxophone. Now, they wound up, eventually got up the guts to ask her out on a date. They went on a date and they started dating and before long, they, they were married. Do I have a picture of them? Yeah, that's them. All right, so it all worked out for him. But when they were dating, he started talking about those longing looks that happened in the worship service. And she kind of looked at him like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> He's like, we, we made contact. 
She said, I'm nearsighted. I can't see beyond the edge of the stage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, it's kind of in that sense that God is a long-sighted God. Because what the Bible tells us is God looked across the expanse of time. And he saw you. And he desired to dwell with you and for you to dwell with him. That's what he wanted. He wants to make a home for you. I think we have a slide on what I just said. He has a home for you to live together with him. And in spite of all of our efforts to push him away, he wants to dwell with us. And even now, he wants to indwell us with his Holy Spirit so that one day he can welcome us into his new home, his new temple on earth, the renewed earth, the reordered earth, the new creation. Do you know how God made it possible for you to be welcomed into the new creation? Most of you probably do, but he made it possible through Jesus. That's how he made it possible. Otherwise, you'd make a mess. <laughs> I mean, it would be, it would all, it would be immediate, immediately be needing reorder again. And um, he made it possible through Jesus. And he um, made it possible in a way that, that he asked us to constantly center our lives around, uh, center around the gospel, the, the story of creation, the new creation, and what Jesus did, and why he came, and how he made it possible. And we celebrate it every week as we have communion together. Jesus died for our sins so that our sins would be paid by him on the cross. He pays for our sins on the cross, the penalty for our sins on the cross. And when we put our faith in him, our sins are transferred to him on the cross. That's, that's how the Bible describes it. Our sins are transferred to him on the cross. And, he, and that's not all. His righteousness, his rightness with God, his righteousness is transferred to our account. That's how God sees us, through the righteousness of Christ. The question is, have you put your trust in Jesus, following him as your Lord and Savior, following him as your forgiver and your leader by putting your faith in him? Because that is where it all starts. We're going to talk more. Um, we got a lot, lot more to cover. Uh, just even this is part one of the sermon masterpiece. But I want to invite you to take out the elements for communion now, and I want you to remember a couple of things. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this." in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that you are a God who desires 
to live with us. I think of the words of Jesus. I heard them this week as we, we had a, a service celebrating um, a sister in Christ who's passed and gone with, with Jesus. Jesus said, I have gone, I will go and prepare a place for you. And I wouldn't tell you that if it weren't true. Father, give us a vision of this place and help us to live in light of it and help us to tell others about it and tell them how you love them and how you want to live in them and with them and what your plan is, your purpose is for our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.